Shalom, Chavarim. Welcome to the Jewish Road Podcast. We are here to help Christians make sense of their roots so they can help the Jewish people make sense of Jesus. My name is Matt, and I'm here with that other guy over there. Yeah, I'm the other guy. Hi, I'm Ron, and shalom to y'all. Or I should say, hi, y'all. Is that what you were practicing that's what, over there? That's what we do now in uh, Kentucky. Hi, y'all. Wow. It's a little well, Jewish play on words. It, it, it's a fantastic Jewish play on words. I'm <laughs> sure the people really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, what are we here to do? What's uh, why, why are we doing a podcast? Well, we're doing a podcast. Uh, I think we're doing a podcast to, uh, like you said when we opened up, to uh, help Christians make sense of their roots so they can help Jews make sense out of Jesus. Yeah, and so we are doing this from a unique perspective. We are both Messianic Jews, which means that we uh, ethnically are Jewish people. Uh, we come from a long line of, in fact, my great, 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 great grandfather was Abraham, right? Right, right. But we're also distinctive and unique because we happen to also believe in Jesus. And there's a few of us, a remnant yeah. In fact, what what's the what's the current statistic out there right now? About one percent. One percent. So of all of the Jewish people in the world, one percent of us of the Jewish people actually believe in Jesus, and the rest say he's not for us. Not for us. I think when I became a believer, it was half of one percent. Wow. So we're growing. Yeah. We're making some headway, and that's why we're doing the podcast, right? Maybe we'll get another half percent by this is by the time this is all done. Yeah. All right. Well, we're here to share the whole story, and uh, we are plunging our way through uh, the story of Passover, and we've been really uh, just hitting it from the Act 1 perspective, and we are, in the upcoming episodes here, going to be tracing our way over into Act 2, and all of this has some really great implications for us, especially coming up in this season. But like in every podcast, we have to have just a little bit of humor because we like to laugh and have some fun, right? Yeah, it's it's just a part of our makeup that we got to do it. Yeah, so we laugh a lot. So yeah. here, uh, you, I believe you have something going on over there. I, I yeah. see you preparing. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> this is kind of an interesting story since we're in Passover. Uh, this is a story about a little boy who came home from Hebrew school, and his father asked him, what did you learn today? And he answers, well... The rabbi told us how Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the father says, yeah, how? How did he say? What did he tell you? And the boy says, well, Moses was a big, strong man, and he beat Pharaoh up. And uh, then while Pharaoh was down, he got all the people together and ran towards the sea. And when he got there at the sea, uh, he had a Army Corps of Engineers build a huge pontoon bridge. Wait, wait, I think we've diverted from the script a little bit, right? It, it, it might be, but it, this, is the, this is the story. This is, this is what he's telling his dad. All right. So they build a big pontoon bridge. Yeah. And once they got out onto the other side, <laughs> all the Jewish people got across on the bridge. Then they blew up the bridge while the Egyptians were trying to cross. <laughs> and so uh, father looks at him and he's kind of shocked. And he says, is that what the rabbi taught you? And the boy says, no, but you'd never believe the story that he did tell us. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. Inflict ourselves with a little Jewish humor. Oh, boy. All right. 
Well, here we go. Let's get into it. Um, we're going to take on a little section here known as the 10 plagues. Uh, growing up in a Jewish household, um, we we had a lot of fun with it. This was the part that felt like you could introduce it to the kids. And even though it's a total pandemic in this entire you know countryside, it's hitting the Egyptians, it's hitting the Israelites. That this is the one part I, I remember. Like we would we would say frogs, and we'd have like all of these little miniature toy frogs. You'd get like you know a hundred for a couple bucks at the little dollar store, and we'd throw the frogs. We say frogs, and everybody run away. And yeah. I know some families they would like get like dye water red, and they would throw this red oh. <laughs> like and they say yeah. blood all over the place. Awful. It's like a very like kind of kiddie part, but there's something actually very heavy and very serious about the whole thing. Yeah, it's a little more serious than we did when, well, we were first new believers back back in those days and as you guys were growing up. But uh, yeah, there's a serious part to the whole thing too. Yeah, and, and there is a, a purpose to all of this. And I, I, we're not going to dig deep into all of them, but we do want to just kind of touch on some of these because there is a story behind some of these. And and as you're looking at this, um, I, maybe just a way of setting this up a little bit is that that God is a God who has brought, in, in the creation narrative, in the very beginning in Genesis, he takes chaos and he brings it to order. And in a sense, as you look through these 10 plagues, we are undoing that creation. We are going from order and moving backwards into chaos. And you see some of these things that are being laid out. And so we want to walk through some of those. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the God who created out of absolutely nothing can also uncreate according to however it serves his purpose. Yeah, and, and not only can he uncreate or allow that chaos to be, but then also put it back together. You know, I don't know if, like, I, if I've tried to fix something in the past, I could always tear something apart, but it was always the putting back together that I was like, uh, where did that, where yeah. did that part go? Yeah. You don't need any instructions to tear it apart. Yeah. So one thing we want to really hit upon is that God has a purpose in all of this. And as you look through Exodus chapter seven, for example, um, it says, I will lay my hands upon Egypt and deliver hosts, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. And verse 5, and the Egyptians shall know that I am God when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And, and one of the things to really key on in that is, uh, and, and throughout, is that God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and between his people Israel. And here he uses a possessive noun, and he refers to them as my hosts, my people. You know, and the nation is seen as being organized like an army. And when he talks about his people, uh, it, he uses the possessive pronoun, and he creates kind of this, uh, an incongruity that is between Pharaoh acting as if the people are his people when they're really God's people. Yeah, and, and so even though you have the Israelites and you have the Egyptians, they're all looking there, and certainly the Egyptians are learning a lesson, uh, and, and many of them, by the end of it, they, they had really joined the ranks of the Israelites and went out in a mixed multitude, out with the Israelites and into the wilderness. Um, the true beneficiaries of the lesson in all of this, God is teaching 
the Israelites, right? And you can, if you fast forward all the way to the end of the story in Exodus 14, it says, when Israel saw the mighty act, literally it means the hand or the arm of God, which the Lord had right. done in Egypt, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They come through all of, all of these horrific things and in every single one of them, uh, God is creating that distinction between Israel and Egypt, and Israel is protected through these things, and uh, they they come out uh, as a people believing in God, and even some of the Egyptians end up believing in God, and that's part of the reason God is doing it also, is he's showing Egypt that he is the only God since they had so many of them. Yeah. Well, let's start at the first plague. Uh, the first plague is the Nile turning to blood, mm-hmm. and as you look at this story, uh, the, the Nile is life for Egypt, and there is this picture of what happens. And before the Nile turns to blood, the Nile is life for everybody. But if you yeah. go back to the beginning of the story, in the beginning of Exodus, what's happening in the Nile? Well, what, what is happening, it's happening for a reason. The reason is there was a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and he became a little paranoid over how Israel was multiplying so fast and the Jews were multiplying so fast and he was afraid that they were going to take over if they got to be too many of them. So he begins to oppress Israel and he hands out a decree that uh, the male children will be drowned in the Nile. Yeah, firstborn male. Firstborn it, male. And this is the, we, we've talked about the the dichotomy between empire and kingdom. Whenever the empire is threatened, they always use fear to get control. Yeah. Right? We're going to, we need to control this situation. Boy, so, does that sound familiar, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, you fast forward, you go to Act 2, and Jesus is born in this little town called Bethlehem, Bethlehem yeah. and there's another ruler of an empire, yeah. but this time it's not Egypt and Pharaoh, it's... Yes. Herod. Herod and Rome. And Rome. Right? Yeah. And there, yeah. there's, there's prophecy that says that there is a new king that will be born. Yeah. Well, so it's it's a population control here back in Exodus, and so we need to drown, get rid of all... There's too many of these boys, which actually is not really all that smart if you're trying to... Well, on one side, you, you're, you're killing some of your labor force, but the other side is you don't want to raise up a next generation of strong men who might be able to overthrow you. Yeah. Now, this is a community, think about this, Egypt, they're, they're coming by force and they're ripping these babies out of their mother's arms. Yeah. Um, and these mothers are trying to hide their babies and keep them safe. Yeah. And, and there shows up here in, in Exodus 2, uh, there's a mother, she conceived, she bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Just a, just an infant at that time, and uh, he got to a point where she couldn't hide him anymore, and she made a basket for him out of the bulrushes, and it says in the scripture that uh, she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. What I translation tar, do you have going on over there? and pitch. <laughs> My goodness, is that King James? Is <laughs> that the Amplified Bible? What are you reading over there? This is an ESV. Wow, it doesn't yeah. even sound like it. It's crazy. It's usually pretty good. Yeah. That's well, a rough let me, one. Let me read it in real English. Yeah, it says this. <laughs> when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Yeah. And she put the child into it, set him among the reeds in the Nile. And, and it's interesting because we don't see these words tar and pitch um, for a while, but they actually, the first time they show up, and this is a really good kind of hermeneutic tool, if you see some words that maybe stand out, what's the first time that they're mentioned in the story? Yeah, well, we... 
we uh, saw them uh, way back when, in the days of Noah, when he was building the ark. Yeah, and so he, he has the ark, and really, the, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, too. Uh, the ark is, is etz, right? He takes right. a tree, and he makes out of, out of the gopher, yeah. etz, out right. of the gopher etz tree. Etz is the Hebrew word for tree. Yeah, and so he... Noah takes his his family, he takes this etz and he covers it with tar and pitch and they go out upon the waters of death and they are saved in this etz. In the etz. In the tree. The tree yeah. saves. Yeah. And now you fast forward here and there's another etz. It's a smaller etz. It doesn't fit all the animals. It just fits three-month-old baby Moses. Yeah. yeah. And it's upon the waters of death, the Nile waters of death once again. Right. Now... This is where the Nile almost takes on this, this almost a anamorphic human form where the Nile is conspiring, in a sense, with Egypt. You throw a baby into the Nile, and that baby's not going to be able to swim. The baby drowns, and the blood is covered. I mean, really, there's a current, and those babies, you know, they're, they're downstream. You don't see them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's really no blood involved in the drowning of the babies and they're silenced. And, and so even in that silence, I think God shows up, especially in this first plague. And I, I think this is an empathetic move on God's part, that he sees, he knows, he hears the cries, even the silent cries of, of his people, um, the cries of the mothers, the cries of the babies. And isn't it interesting that here in that first plague, um, in this reversal, um, that God mm-hmm. is taking that, and now the Nile, the sins have caught up, and the Nile can no longer hold back the blood of the innocents that were killed in it. Actually, what, what you're getting at is the fact that God, in the first plague, turns the Nile River into blood. Yeah. And... You know, it's interesting, even though I I said that when the baby drowns, he's not bleeding, and yet uh, God will tell us later in Leviticus that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Yeah, that's right. And there's, there's I think there's a certain significance to that, um, because if you go back and recall Cain and Abel, Hmm. when... uh, when Cain killed his brother Abel, God said, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Ooh. And now, That's good. all of these babies being thrown into the Nile River, God is in essence, uh, when he turns that river to blood, is saying in the same kind of a, a way that their blood is crying out. And he gives a vivid illustration of it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That's good. You're holding yeah. out. You didn't tell me that before. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's the stuff that just floats around in my head. All right, so that's the first plague. I, I want to really quickly just run through the rest of the plagues. And as we do that, uh, I want you to see that there's a connection. As God, the creator in, in Genesis, uh, has created everything and he's brought chaos to order, there is an undoing of all of that. And you take even the next few plagues, right? You have frogs. Frogs are supposed to be in the water. They're supposed to stay in the water. That's where they like to hang out. And now they're coming out of the water. Um, and so you have like in Genesis one twenty, let the swarms, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, right? So you have that. It's it's the, the frogs, they're living in such a way that is incongruent with how they are naturally designed. Yeah. And then you have 
the lice and the lice they come from the clumped earth right and so you you look at this and you see that that the lice is coming through and they are attacking and they're going through you look at the flies in the fourth one and you have the swarms of insects in Genesis 1:22 it says that there are flying creatures that multiply on the, on the land but in Egypt the flies they not only multiply in the land they fill the land um, and and we have these God wants us to be able to fill the land and and there's going to be the reproduction but finally in 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 Genesis 1:28 says God God tells the people to rule the fish of the sea the winged creatures of the heavens and all creatures which creep on the earth in Egypt these creatures are totally out of control. They are the ones ruling the humans, not the other way around. Yeah, um, and th- this is something that God has done uh, in in His sovereign will and uh, in in His providence to bring things to his appointed ends here, which are to get his people now out of Egypt and into the land that he promised. Each of these things that you mentioned is actually a god of Egypt, the frogs, the gnats. They had a god for that. Uh, The flies, the god of Beelzebub is the uh, Egyptian god of flies. And so God is really uh, bringing a judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. Yeah, you go through and you see the pestilence, and that that's the next one. And and you look and in Genesis two, the animals they're created specifically for man, and and now they're they're being removed. You can look at the hail and the locust. There's destruction of another part of creation, right? You have locusts. We even have locusts that comes through today, um, and they'll they'll go through like these places in Africa, and they destroy the vegetation. Whereas you look in the Genesis account once again, the land is bringing forth vegetation and seed bearing fruit with it. And then you get to darkness in, in the ninth plague. And it's it's one of these, it's just kind of out of the blue, right? It, what, what's That's happening? That's a way there? of putting it. <laughs> oh, out of the blue. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we go from the blue to the black, right? Yeah. In, uh, in 1023, the people could not see each other. And for three days, no one could get up from where they were. It's a it's yeah. a deafening, a blinding blindness, right? Of all the, yeah. the black. Yeah, it's, it's just a darkness. And what, what is really interesting about that is that the scripture talks about the fact that this happened to the Egyptians, but it didn't happen to the children of Israel. So there is a just a pinpoint dividing line, I think, uh, between Israel and where they are in Goshen and where the Egyptians are. And it's, it's like a line that divides pitch black dark with light. And you say to yourself, how can that be? You know, even when the sun goes down, it, it goes down to dusk and to twilight, and then finally it gets dark. There wasn't any of that gray area in between. It was just strictly black on one side and white on the other side, if I can put it that way. You know, and this, again, is a judgment against a god that the Egyptians had. Uh, this is Ra, R-A, the sun god. Uh, so... Again, this is a judgment of, against the Egyptian gods. And what is interesting is Israel has now been in Egypt now as slaves. They haven't been free. They haven't been, you know, really, they've probably been detached from their religion. And all they have of it is what they have heard. And if anything has been passed down from generation to generation uh, in that bondage, uh, they may be waiting for God to deliver them, but the only thing that they saw all around them were so many of the false gods of Egypt. And so in doing this, God is having 
to establish himself as the God, the one and only, the true and living God against all of the false gods of Egypt so that he can save his people out of that Egyptian bondage. And even as the scripture shows in many places, I think there's eight places in just a a couple of chapters in Exodus where the Egyptians saw what was going on and they believed that it was the God of Israel who was doing these things. Well, and you come from a polytheistic culture, and the sense was that when all of these things are happening, you're thinking, oh, the gods must be fighting. We have to appease this God because this God is upset. And so you you have these gods. It was never this thought that there could possibly be just one God who had control That's right. over all of it. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned the sun god, Ra, but there was also the god of the setting sun, which is Etum, and... Those two might have been fighting with each other, like you say. Right. Uh, But what really happens, and this is, again, the undoing of the creation narrative. I mean, look, Genesis 1, 3, then God, monotheistic, the one God, said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Right there in the very beginning, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Mm -hmm. There was a sequence to it. God broke it up. Right here, you have the darkness and the light, but there's a wall between them, essentially. Right. right. So God is undoing this natural order. And then the other thing is that he could take that and then he can restore it back to its original creation. Right. And, and, and what you're saying is uh, when, when there's this strict line between darkness and light, it, it's not like uh, we think of darkness and light like Pacific time and East Coast time. There's a right. line that goes right down the middle. And essentially, too, I mean, it, it should be faith-building for us. If, if that same God can undo the plagues uh, and bring things that were in chaos back to order, uh, we know that creation even today under the curse of sin is groaning, that one day there will be a restoration of all things. So that gives us some hope in some of that. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we get to the death of the firstborn. That's the tenth and the last plague. And this is really the the big one. This is the one that is the game changer for everything. And this is really, it's an undoing of Genesis one twenty six, right? We will make man in our image after our likeness. You have the creation of humans, and now man is essentially being destroyed. The firstborn male who were not covered under the blood, mm-hmm. uh, they, were, they were cut off. They were killed. And this, again, is a judgment and an attack against the Egyptian gods. They had several gods uh, that uh, were givers of life. Uh, For example, Osiris was one. Um, So God is, uh, he is going after the gods of Egypt to show himself as the one true God. Now, as as we look at all of this, You look and you get to the end of the narrative in Exodus, and Israel looks back over the stilled water of the sea uh, at a land with no people. There's no animals, no vegetation. There's a land in which creation had really been undone. In the end of this, Israel becomes convinced that that God is the Lord over all creation. This even sets up uh, this narrative that takes place in Act 2. Right, Jesus shows up. One of the first recorded miracles we get is is in John. But even before we get to John, towards the end of all of this, remember in Exodus 14, we were looking at that. Is that where you were going there? At the very end of Exodus, uh, verse, uh, uh, what are, where am I? Verse, uh, looking at about verse uh, 30, 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, yeah. and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It, it, keeps, it keeps going. So, yeah, when they saw the power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Yeah. And, and these, these were miraculous things that God did, but it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, you brought up in uh, John, in the second chapter, you have Yeshua, Jesus, at the uh, marriage feast at Cana, and uh, it's the miracle where he turns the uh, water into wine, and that, that in itself was... Uh, was a miracle. It says that it was the first of his miracles. And in John chapter 2 and verse 11, it says the first of his signs uh, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Uh, I think God was manifesting his glory back in Exodus as well. Yeah. Uh, Yeshua was doing it in uh, a way, uh, seems uh, a little anticlimactic against uh you know, the Red Sea, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, it was the first of his signs. He was going to do many others, and his disciples, it says, believed in him. And, you know, the uh, the reality of the whole thing is that, uh, you know, the miracles were not just displays of God's power, but uh, they were representative of a significance that went beyond the mere acts themselves and required the faith of those who saw. And this is what was taking place with the disciples. This was the goal of what God was doing in Egypt. Uh, we don't believe just because we saw the, the miracles themselves, but because who was behind the miracles? Yeah, I, I'm just thinking through like all, all of the second act, the New Testament miracles that are taking place, uh, all of these things is God bringing restoration to things that are broken, right? We take the, the yeah. blind and the sick and the lame, yeah. and, and God gives them sight, and they can walk again, right? It's, it's where, where things have gone into chaos once again that God is bringing order. He's writing where in the places where sin has really destroyed. You go even to the boat, and we talked about this earlier, um, the disciples are on the boat, and once again, there's there's water that is running amok. It's there's chaos right yeah, on the sea. They're in the middle of a storm. Yeah, it's it, overlapping the boat, and he's sleeping in the back. Right, and and <laughs> it says that they're afraid, yeah. and then Jesus, who is God, yeah, he says, "Shalom, hush, yeah. be still." And to the wind, to the storm. Right to the storm, and it says they go from being afraid. I think Mark says this goes from afraid to. Very afraid. Very afraid. They're petrified. They're petrified because they all of a sudden realize who's in the boat with them. Right. It, it is God. So all of these things that take place in Act 1, yeah. when Jesus comes on the scene in Act 2 and he's performing these miracles, they those are the moments where they realize he's not just a man, that yeah. he's doing things that only God could have done right. and has done yeah. historically. Yeah, you know we've we've been tracing this as we've been going through Exodus, and uh, we're just giving another example here, a couple of examples uh, out of the gospel accounts. Uh, you know, and and it's interesting that uh, the important fact of the whole matter is that Yeshua, Jesus, is God. You know, there, there's somebody who's a pretty famous guy. I think you probably know him, Dennis Prager. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I uh, love Dennis Prager. I mean, he's a great guy, great thinker. He's a fine human being as far as, you know, what I can see of him, and I've been listening to him for a long time. Uh, but it's very interesting. Uh, he, he loves Christians because he, he believes Christians really love him. Uh, and he'll enter into conversations about Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that, uh, you know, he would say that he has no problem with Jesus being the Messiah, but what he and Jewish people have a problem with is Jesus being God. And what we're trying to uh, lay out here is the fact that uh, the God of the Old Covenant, Act One, that we call it, of this two-act play, is the same God who is in the New Covenant, Act Two, and he's doing the same things that he did uh, right from the beginning. Yeah, and speaking even of the, the Gospel of John, um, it's funny, we brought up the water to wine, but it just hit me uh, at the end of the story of John. In chapter 20, verse 30, it says that there were many other signs, therefore, that Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I, I always wonder, like, what yeah. were they? What did he yeah. do? The, the libraries of the world couldn't hold it all. Yeah. Yeah. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, that's the story. And that, I mean, you just jump back to Exodus chapter 14, and that is why they believed. The Israelites, they looked at all that had happened. They look at the desecrated landscape, the animals, the ground, the people, and they're saying... God has finally come and visited us. Yeah. He heard our cry. Joseph was right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go get Joseph. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and interesting too, even just to kind of wrap up that idea of the the ten plagues. I always thought this was interesting. Uh, in in the Genesis one account, as God is creating everything, uh, ten times God says, "Let there be," and there's a creation point, right? You have Genesis one, verse three, verse six, verse nine, eleven, fourteen, twenty, twenty four, twenty six, twenty eight, twenty nine. Ten times God says, "Let there be," and God brings about creation. And here in Exodus, we have 10 times the undoing. Undoing of the creation. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. So as we're here, um, we wrap up uh, in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. God brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. Um, and, and we look at our God, the one true God who is over all other gods of the world, all over the universe. As we look at this story, uh, this is far more than uh, kids and throwing... Uh, throwing the plagues around, um, we even have finger puppets as plagues. Yeah, <laughs> but this is there's something real that's going on. God wants to make Himself known, and He wants to be known as the deliverer of His people. It's a serious thing. I think we should wrap it up there. Okay. All right. Well, this has been the Jewish Road Podcast. Thanks for listening. We have some more to come, and guess what? We're finally going to get into the second act, and we're going to talk about what was going on when Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he's remembering this Exodus story with them at the very last Passover Seder. You may know it as the Last Supper. What was he talking about with his disciples, and what did he bring to light in that meal? We'll hit that next time on the Jewish Road Podcast. But for now, Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. It means... Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, especially these days. Shalom.